You may be seated. If you remember, going all the way back to where we started in 1 Corinthians, I began with this comment, the church at Corinth had a lot of problems. And I'm sticking with that statement because we're going to see this over and over again as we study in 1 Corinthians. Now, we read this and we have a, we're prone to think like this, is whatever happened to these good old New Testament churches? Whatever happened to the kinds of churches that they had in the day of the Apostle Paul? Well, I'd have to tell you that I really would not want to switch the Berean Baptist Church with these churches that Paul was dealing with here in the New Testament. There were glaring problems that were in this church. And just thank the Lord, they had a man like the Apostle Paul who knew what he was doing, led by the Spirit of God, and he could help these people with these problems and straighten them out. Now, even though Corinth was an apostolic church, I really don't think that we want to be a church like the one at Corinth. Rather, I think that we really need to do is try to do everything that we can to avoid being like this church. And the reason that the scriptures have these things for us and we can read these things is so that we can spot these unhealthy trends in the church and we can begin to work on those things before we fall into Corinthian-type sins. Well, among all the problems that this Corinthian church they had, they had a problem with pride. Many people were proud, they were boasters, or as Paul puts it in this scripture, you are just a bunch of puffed up people. You ever heard how some people want to confess the sin of pride? I heard about a a lady who came up after the pastor's preaching on a Sunday morning. She came up after the invitation and she shook the pastor's hand and she said, Pastor, I just want to confess my sin of pride. She said, every time I pass by a mirror, I just think how beautiful I am. And the pastor said, ma'am, your problem is not pride. Your problem is just ignorance. And this is what, you know, people think so highly of themselves today. Well, how do we deflect the sin of pride? Well, three statements I want to make today that will help us in this area. And with these statements, I want to make an admonition. Now, first of all, if you're going to deal with pride, you need to realize this, that everything good about you came as a gift from God. Everything good about you, it came as a gift from God. Now, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is one that we find right here in this text. In verse number seven, Paul asked these people three rhetorical questions. He says, for who maketh thee to differ from another? That's question number one. And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? That's question two. Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? That's the third question. Now, the message I want to preach today is about pride, but I really don't think that I can pass this scripture unless we look at the larger issue of salvation. And that's because there are so many people, and perhaps they do it without intent, but they look at salvation as a personal accomplishment. And they believe that the reason they're saved is because of their intelligence. It's because of some good choices that they've made. They just decided one day, I think that I'm going to get saved. And so salvation to them is just a simple decision-making process. There was something that was in them. There was a seed of faith. There was some good thing. And they just simply had more sense than other people to know that they needed to be saved. But there's really nothing that's more damaging to the true gospel of Christ than to think that we are regenerated simply by a decision-making process. Preachers will beg and they'll plead and they try all different kinds of sneaky tactics 
They do it a lot of times at invitation time, and they try to trick someone into making a confession of faith. And really what they're after is for that person to make a decision. They're after the decision that they're going to make. Well, Paul makes it very clear here that your salvation is purely a gift from God, and if you differ from another person for any other reason, if you are saved and they are not, it's not because you're wise enough, and it's not because you could make some kind of decision in your own intelligence that other people can't make. You differ from another person simply because God has made you to differ. And so there's no reason for you to boast about your faith. There's no reason to boast about anything that's spiritual in you because everything that you have came as a gift from God. Your faith is a gift from God. God's the one who even decides who will receive that gift of faith. So you don't receive the gift simply because you decided, I'm going to receive the gift. The reason that you do is because God came to you, he changed your will, he changed your disposition towards him, and he caused you that you would want to have this gift. Now, if everybody had a desire to be saved, then God would grant them salvation. But have you noticed something? We don't have people knocking down our doors trying to get trying to get in here to learn how to be saved. I mean, we're not beating people away from the doors because we just can't handle all this rush that we have because people want to be saved. And you know why? It's because people do not naturally want to be saved. It's only when God gives that person the capacity to receive this gift that that person will ever receive it. So I just wanted to get that out of the way first. All boasting in salvation is excluded. God doesn't allow it. Paul doesn't condone it. And he says to these people, you are not saved because of anything that you did. You're not saved and you don't differ from the worst criminal, from the worst murderer, from the worst thief. And for any other reason, then God has made you to differ. But let's go back here and let's relate this in general to the issue of pride. Now, keep in mind, keeping in mind what I just said, I read this comment the other day that someone came to a pastor and said, Pastor, will you pray for me that I might be a humble person? And the pastor said, why? Why do I need to pray for you to be a humble person? What do you have to be proud of? And this is exactly what Paul is saying. What do you have to be proud of? What are you boasting about? As if anything that you have or anything that you are did not come from God. And if you did receive it from God, why do you have a right to boast about it? Well, here's the admonition that I want to make today. Don't brag because everything you have comes from God. Now, in the Bible, there are several examples that we could use of people who are afflicted with this sin of pride. I could even spend some time today talking to you about Lucifer. Lucifer was an angel and he sinned against God and he was cast out of heaven. Of course, today we know Lucifer as Satan. And pride was the first sin that was introduced into the universe. So we could talk about that. But what I really want to do is go back into the Old Testament. And I want to look at one of the best examples that we have there. And it's in the story of Nebuchadnezzar. I'd like you to turn to Daniel chapter 4, if you would please, in the Old Testament. And if you don't have a Bible today, just lean over uh, next to someone. And you folks share your Bibles with someone else so we can all see this scripture. But here the Bible talks about a a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He was king in Babylon at the time that Daniel lived. And this king, Nebuchadnezzar, was self-deluded. 
I mean, he really thought that he was somebody and he was so proud of himself that he decided he was going to set himself up to be God. So he surveyed his kingdom. He looked at all the things that, all the places that he had conquered and all the wealth that he had and he tried to be God. But you know what happened? God brought him so low that the scripture says that for a time he became like a wild animal. And so instead of sitting in his fine palace in Babylon, God gave him this deranged mind so that Nebuchadnezzar, just like a wild animal, went out and lived in the wilderness. Now, while he was in his fine palace in Babylon, no doubt he had a manicurist, no doubt he had a hairstylist, but the Bible says here that when he went out in that wilderness, when God turned him loose there, that his fingernails grew and became like bird's claws. It says that the the hair grew out on his body like eagle's feathers. Then it says that he went out there and he grazed in the field just like an ox. Now, I want to see, I want you to see the confession of the sin of pride in Nebuchadnezzar. Look at Daniel chapter 4, verse number 34. It says, And at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven. Now, the end of days, he's talking about there at the end of the time period when God turned him into that wild animal and sent him into the wilderness. At the end of those days, he said, I lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned unto me. And for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me. And my counselors and my Lord sought unto me. And I was established in my kingdom. And excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Nebuchadnezzar was brought low, and God brought him down low so that he would see that there was no reason in himself to brag. It was God who set him up on that throne, and it was God who had the power to depose him at his will. The Bible teaches us that God is sovereign over all men and God does according to his will in this world today. Now I want you to think today about who you are physically and think about who you are spiritually and who you are intellectually and you need to understand that every good thing about you, it came from God. And so you can't brag about yourself. Everything evil, well, you're on your own there. That didn't come from God, but everything that you can declare that's good about you, that was a gift from God. Now, I want to look a little bit closer at another example, and this is one that we find in the New Testament, and perhaps this one is a little bit closer to what we experience in churches today. But you remember two men that Jesus spoke about in in Luke chapter 18. The first man was a Pharisee, and the other one was a tax collector. Well, this Pharisee was a man who was proud of his goodness, He declared himself to be a righteous man. He was just the typical Pharisee of that time. Very religious person, kept strict obedience to all the laws of God, or at least he thought that he did. The other man, though, was a publican. Publicans were tax collectors. They were hated by the Jewish people. 
They worked for the Roman government. They were considered to be traitors because what they did, not only did they collect the Roman taxes, but they charged the people more than the taxes that were due. And they would take that money and line their own pockets. And so the Jews hated these tax collectors. Well, the Pharisee went into the temple to pray. And as he began to pray, he talked to God about all of his virtues. And it's interesting the way that he starts out because he fits right into the type of person that Paul is talking about there in 1 Corinthians. In Luke 18, 11, Jesus is telling this story. And he says, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. And do you see what he says here? I am not as other men are. Well, what did the apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians? Who made you to differ from another? But he says, I thank you that I'm not like these other people are. Then he goes on. He says, I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. And then he glances over at that old tax collector. And he says, I'm not like that tax collector. I'm not like that publican sitting over there. And Jesus says, well, that's the way a lot of people are in church. They think, well, look how good I am. I'm holier than you. But this tax collector... He wouldn't even come up to the front of the temple. He was just sitting there in the back thinking, I am unworthy even to enter into this place. The Bible says that he wouldn't even look up into heaven, but he smote upon his breast and he said, Lord, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then Jesus asked a question. He said, which one of these men do you think was justified? And the answer Not the one who thought that he was righteous. Not the one who said, I'm holier than everybody else. Not the one who was so proud. But he said, it's that old, dirty tax collector. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. What do you have that you didn't receive? Why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Now, I want to ask you today about your attitude in this area. Now, you might be thinking today, well, look at me. I'm in church on Sunday morning, and I'm really a holy Christian because I'll be here at church tonight too. And the best, the cream of the crop, they come on Wednesday nights, and I fit right in with all of that. Oh, I'm just a holy person. I'm sacrificing because I came to church today. I could be doing so many other things, but I decided to show up in God's house. Is that what you think? Or are you the kind of person who realizes you are just a sinner still? And instead you say, here I am, God. In my flesh dwells no good thing. And Paul said, that's the attitude that you ought to have. There's no room for pride. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm so thankful for the attitude of John the Baptist. When John came preaching, there were people who looked at him And they said, John, you're baptizing. John, you're preaching. You must be the Messiah. And John had a perfect opportunity to build himself up. And he could have said, oh, yes, that's who I am, all right. You look to me. You listen to my preaching. But that's not what John the Baptist said. He said, no, I am not the Messiah. And he went even further. He said, I'm not even worthy to reach down and to tie or untie his shoelaces. And then John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Said he wonder that Jesus said about John the Baptist that there was not a greater man born among women than John the Baptist. Why did Jesus say that? 
Because John the Baptist was the kind of man who wasn't proud of himself. He knew where the glory belonged. He knew where the honor was. He knew who to praise. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you something, folks. The very best way that we can stop trouble in our church is to realize exactly who we are and where we came from. We have no reason to boast. We ought not to promote ourselves. Every one of us ought to be saying today, he must increase and I must decrease. And so the first statement is, Mr. Big Stuff, everything good about you and everything good in you, everything that you have came as a gift from God so you can stop bragging on yourself. Now let's go on here because there's another statement. Statement number two is, you can't fit the world's model and live for Jesus at the same time. You can't fit into what the world wants and what Jesus wants at the same time. So Paul says you have to make a choice here. Either you are going to decide that you're going to be successful by the world's standard or you'll be successful by Jesus' standard. Now this is where he gets into this sanctified sarcasm that he used and he makes four comparisons and he does this with his tongue planted firmly in his cheek as he says this. Now the first comparison we find in verse number 8. He says, now ye are full, now ye are rich, ye have reigned as kings without us. And I would to God ye did reign that we might also reign with you. Now comparison number one here is kings versus slaves. Now let's try to understand a little bit about what he's saying. He says, now, wow, look at you, Mr. Big Stuff. You've got it all, don't you? I mean, you're living like a king. You're proud. You're arrogant. You have all this stuff because you are really something to behold. Well, you could think Nebuchadnezzar right there. In fact, you can think about the Laodicean church. Jesus spoke to them and he said to them, Thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So Paul says, you have it all. And I just wish that we could be kings like you, that we could reign with you in your little religious world. But look at the comparison he makes in verse number nine. For I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last as it was appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. And let me show you what Paul means here. You remember as we were reading this a moment ago, as we were all standing together, I said, look at that word spectacle in verse number nine. It's the same word from which we get theater. And what Paul had in his mind was the Colosseums, like the Colosseum in Rome. Many of you probably, I know you've seen pictures of the Colosseum. Some of you probably been there before. And in most of the ancient cities, they would have these Colosseums just like this one at Rome. I mean, you may have seen uh, the movie Ben-Hur. And you remember when they take the slaves out there into the arena? Well, they made sport of those slaves. And this is what Paul is talking about or was referring to. So in those days, the Christians were taken into the arena and they would fight with the lions. Well, they also had these big name, big time gladiators, which is kind of what you could call the Roman version of WrestleMania. And what they had was these, these, big, big, these big time gladiators out there and they promoted these contests just like they do with professional wrestling today. And some of these contests were rigged, just like professional wrestling today. Now, I don't want to burst some of your bubble who didn't know that, but some of that wrestling on TV, that's actually fake. Did you know that? Well, they had these big promoters of these gladiators, and they would rig those contests many times just like they do wrestling matches today. 
All of that's taking place in the Colosseum. Well, after the main event was over, they would bring out the Christians, and they would bring out the slaves, and they'd bring out the prisoners, people that they wanted to put to death, and they would put them out there with the lions, and they would fight those lions. This is what Paul is saying. He says, you want to be kings, but we apostles, we're like slaves. In other words, you don't fit into the correct model. You want to be a king, but if you're going to serve Christ, you have to serve him as a slave. You have to look at yourself in the right way. So you don't fit into the right mold. So that's the first comparison, kings versus slaves. Well, the next comparisons are all found in verse number 10. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Comparison number two is fools versus wise. And he says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you think that you're so wise. Well, these Christians thought that they were wise because what they had done was to learn to avoid all the pitfalls that Paul and the apostles fell into. And you know how they did it? They did it by compromising with the world. They lived just like their neighbors that were around them. They entered into the same kinds of sins, and so that kept them from experiencing being turned away like the apostle Paul was. They just lived like the people that were around them. Now, Paul says here, I am content to be a fool for Christ. You think that you're so wise, but I'm content to be a fool for Christ. And people really do believe that the preaching of the gospel of Christ is foolishness. They think that we're crazy. We're fools for being in church today when we could be doing so many other things. Why do you go to church? You're a fool. You try to explain to people at work why you give 10% of your income and an offering when you come to church. And they think, well, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. How can you live in Sonoma County today by giving 10% of your income and more to, to your church? How do you do that? Well, I don't know how you do it. I just know it works. God takes care of me. God supplies the needs that I have. And God just promises me that if I'll give to him like he says, that he'll supply those needs for me. And I'm so happy today to know that I have a part through my money, through my tithes and offerings uh, of seeing people one to Jesus Christ here in this community, around the world, the missionaries that we support. You can call me a fool for Christ. That's all right. And I hope that's what you want to be. Don't worry about what the world says is wisdom. Be a fool for Christ. Now, comparison number three, he says, is weakness versus strength. We are weak, but you are strong. So he says to them, you are full of your self-sufficiency. You don't have time to depend on the Lord's strength. You know, there was a time when Paul could brag about who he was. He said, I know the law. He said, I I am the Hebrew of the highest order. I was educated by Israel's greatest rabbis. He said, I was well-respected by all of my colleagues. I was wise and I was rich. But you know what Paul says now after he's been saved by the grace of God? He says, I count all of that but dung. It's nothing but refuse. It's all trash. And the only thing that I glory now is in what I do for Christ and who I am in Christ. That's all that matters. None of the rest matters. Comparison number four is honor versus dishonor. He says, you are honored and we are despised. You know, I can think of the church at Corinth like the big mega church. The church that has all of the social programs. They have their rock band. 
They have their nightclub atmosphere. Everybody in Corinth is talking about how hip they are at the church at Corinth. How exciting it is, how entertaining it is to go to church in Corinth. And I can imagine that's the kind of church that it was. But Paul says, now let's go back here to verse number 9 and see what the truth is. He says, we are spectacled. We're spectacled. We're spectacles to be made fun of. We're on a stage and the whole world is watching us. Do you know that's the truth? Yes, the world is watching us. You have to be aware that the world watches everything that you do. And the world forms its opinions of Christianity by what you do. You claim to be a Christian, then they're going to see what Christians are all about by what you do. So Paul says, yes, we're on a stage here. We're in a theater. People are watching us. But you know, the Bible also tells us it's not just people who are watching us. Here it says that there are angels that watch us. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that the saints are watching us. It talks about this great cloud of witnesses that are in heaven, and they're observing. We're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, and they're watching everything that we do. Shakespeare said, all the world is a stage. I don't know if he got the idea from the Bible, but what he said was absolutely true. We are actors on a stage. Now, the question is, how are you performing? How are you performing in your Christian life? And maybe a better question than that is, is it only a performance? That might be a better question for most Christians. Are you just pretending to be a Christian? Are you play-acting Christianity? You know how you can tell? You can tell by the impact that it has on your life and on the lives of others. Are you impacting other people for Christ? Does it change your own lifestyle? And that tells you whether you're really play-acting Christianity or not. There's going to be a change in people who believe in Christ. Now the question is, are you a Christian when you come to church for one hour on Sunday morning? You're a Christian when you sit here, but you're not a Christian out there. You're not a Christian when you go to work tomorrow. And you're not a Christian where you go to have your recreation and all the other things that you do. You're just play-acting Christianity if you're not a Christian all of the time. So the world is watching how you act. They watch how you react. And whenever you're faced with a temptation, the world looks at you to see what you are going to do. How are you going to react? You can't fit into the world's model and fit into what Christ wants you to be at the same time. So Mr. Big Stuff, who do you think you are? Are you a phony or do you really love Jesus? Now here's the admonition today. Don't bow to the world and become like it. Get over yourself, Mr. Big Stuff. I mean, if the apostles experienced dishonor at the hands of the world, then who are you to fare better than they? And actually, you know, you don't. You won't fare better. I mean, if you live for Christ, you won't fare better than those apostles did. And that brings me to my third statement today. Living for Jesus means that you will suffer. You will suffer if you live for Jesus. You'll learn how to deal with pride because when you live for Jesus and you follow the cause of Christ and you're a Christian who follows the Lord in all things, there'll be a pin stuck in you that deflates all egos. Now, here's what he says happens to you. Look at verses 11 through 13. He says, even under this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it, being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring 
of all things to this day. When uh, Jim Valvano was the coach of the University of, uh, or North Carolina State University, I should say, they, they won the basketball championship in, in 1983. And one of his famous quotes was, don't give up, don't ever give up. And he was asked about that when uh, he had the, his team had this improbable victory where they won the NCAA championship on a last-second shot. And so he said, don't give up, don't ever give up. And he was also known for, for some other famous quotes. Uh, he said, one time I asked a ref if I could be given a technical foul for what I think about him. And the ref said, well, no, I can't give you a technical foul for that. And he said, well, I think you stink. He said, he gave me a technical. You can't trust those guys. He was known for all different kinds of quotes. But, but here's the admonition I want you to get today. Don't ever give up. And to that I might add, don't ever break down. Don't give up and don't break down and don't be upset over this because you're a Christian who suffers. There's not something wrong with you. And it doesn't mean you're unspiritual because you suffer as a Christian. This is inevitable. Now look at his words in verse 13. We are made as the filth of the world and the offscouring of all things unto this day. You know what that literally means? It means sewage. We're made like garbage. Now, I want to gross you out today, but in the ancient cities, they dug gutters along the edges of the streets, and they would use that to carry away their their sewage and their garbage. In the houses, they would have what what we call chamber pots. And when that chamber pot was full, you know what they did? They just walked out there to the edge of the street, and they poured it in that little trough, and then the water came along and washed all that sewage right down to the river. So all that sewage, that's what Paul says you're being compared to. Now, Mac Mac Davis sang a song. He said, oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. It is not hard to be humble when there are people who are comparing you to sewage. There's no pride in this. You will suffer for the cause of Christ, and that will bring you deep humility. And so this is what Paul says you are to the world. You're just like sewage to the world. Mr. Big Stuff, who do you think you are? You stick your thumbs in your suspenders and you talk about how big I am and mighty I am and how holy I am. You need to realize what people are really thinking about you when you try to live a Christian life. But you know what happens? There are preachers who come along and they say, well, no, that's not the way that it is. I mean, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be healthy all the time. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to be wealthy God wants to give you a big house and God wants you to drive a fine car. You're just not living to the fullness of your potential. There's something wrong with your Christian life if you don't have all of these things. And they refuse to believe that the Bible says very clearly that a Christian will suffer for the cause of Christ. What does Paul say about it? You know, these preachers say all these things. Uh, when, when Brother Castro was here, he quoted the most famous TV preacher today. He said, you can have your best life now. What does Paul say about it? Look at verse 11. Even under this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. Folks, Joel Osteen does not match what the Apostle Paul says. These people that are preaching that health, wealth, and prosperity gospel do not match what Paul says. And I'll tell you something. If you watch those things on TV, turn it off, keep the TV off, and read your Bible the same amount of time you watch that stuff, and I'll guarantee you'll be better off in your Christian life. 
Those people are telling you a lie. Do we suffer as Christians? Well, let's just look at 2,000 years of Christian history. If you don't own one of these, I encourage you to do this. We talked about Christian bookstores a minute ago, but you could go to the Christian bookstore and you can order this book or you can get it online. Order this book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. And in this book, you'll find that there are thousands of people, or maybe in the book, hundreds of people that were persecuted for the cause of Christ. One of the accounts that you'll find in this book is about a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was a Christian. He was saved under the ministry of the apostle John, and he lived in the city of Smyrna. Well, Polycarp was arrested for being a Christian, and they took him to execute him. Before he was executed, he prayed, and he prayed with such fervency that it said that when the, when the guards heard him praying, they actually became convicted of their sins, and they trusted Christ. But Polycarp was arrested. He was taken to the Roman proconsul. And he was told that if you will renounce your faith, if you will deny the name of Christ, and if you will say that Caesar is Lord, then we'll let you go. Well, Polycarp was 86 years old. And he said, in 86 years, he has not failed me. And so he refused. He was taken and he was tied to a stake. And there he was burned. As he was burning, the people hated him so much that while he was in the torment of those flames, there was a soldier who came up and also stabbed him with a knife. They hated him so much. Christians were persecuted. If you read on, you find out many different things that took place. Down through the centuries, Christians were killed in various cruel ways. They were put on racks. They were tied their hands and their feet and they would slowly turn this rack and they would literally pull their arms from their bodies and pull their legs from their bodies. They took Christians and they put them into into sacks with poisonous snakes. They tied those sacks up and they threw them into the river. There is one device that they use. It's called an iron maiden. And this was like a, like a, a, a coffin, an upright coffin. And there were spikes that were on the lid of this coffin. And they would place that person in there and they would slam the door shut. And those spikes would pierce their head and their torso and their legs. Christians suffered horribly for the cause of Christ. Millions of Baptists, you'll find out, were killed for standing for the truth of God's word. And you know that many of their deaths occurred at the hands of others, so-called Christians, who didn't like the things that we believe. Now, I have a question for you today as we end the message. I preached recently about the judgment seat of Christ. And I wonder what will happen when we get to heaven and what we're going to say to to these first century Christians about our experiences. Are we going to tell these first century Christians how hard it was to be a Christian in Rohnert Park? Are you going to go to one of those suffering Christians, one of those persecuted Christians, you're going to say, you know something, this was so bad, but I bowed my head in a restaurant and somebody at the table next to me made fun of me. Oh, that's terrible, isn't it? Oh, it was so bad that I took my Bible to work. And I read my Bible at my lunch hour. And there were people that were snickering at me. And they were calling me a fool because I'm a Christian. What are you going to say to those first century Christians about those things? Is it hard to live a Christian life here? Now, the thing that Paul is trying to show us is that we have no room to boast. There's nothing in us. All we have is the sufficiency of Christ. And if you are totally sold out for Jesus, there will be no pride. There's no room for you to boast of anything. Now, here's the last statement I want to make for your listening sheet today. 
You probably already guessed what goes in the blanks here. I am only a sinner saved by grace. We sang that song a few minutes ago, and there's a great line in it. It says, boasting, excluded, pride I abase. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. Is that what you are today? Do you believe that? I'm only a sinner saved by grace. And then what, what reason do we have to boast? Where does this pride come from among Christians? Where's the fighting and the squabbling come from among Christian people who want to assert themselves? I must have my rights. I must have this. What if we're only sinners saved by grace? Now, the Bible tells us that as a Christian, you'll suffer persecution. But how do you react when people persecute you? Oh, the typical man, the one who doesn't know Christ, when he's persecuted, he, he retaliates. And he says, you can't do that to me. It's not right for you to do that to me. You know what happened to the martyr Stephen as he was being stoned? Right where they were throwing rocks at him and beating out his life. He said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. When Jesus was suffering on the cross, he was persecuted. We know how he was beaten. And as they nailed those nails into his hands and he hung there, he said to God, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Here's what you learn as a Christian. There is no room for you and the Holy Spirit living in the same body. It must be all him. It must be all Christ. Mr. Big Stuff, who do you think you are? I know who I am and I hope you know who you are. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that the Apostle Paul gives us. Help us to understand, Lord, there's nothing in us. There's no sufficiency in what we do. We have to look to you. We must look to the cross. It's what was done on that cross that saves us from our sins. And there's nothing that we can add or take away from that for salvation. Lord, I pray that you might speak to some heart today. Help our people to realize who we are in you how we need to take a stand for you, to live for you, that our Christianity and the expression of our faith really is something that has changed us and makes an impact on our lives and on the lives of others. Lord, if there's somebody here today who isn't saved, and maybe they've missed the whole point of my message today, it's hard to get self out of the way. I just ask you, Lord, you would speak to their heart, open their hearts to the gospel of Christ, open the eyes of understanding that they might know you as personal Savior. Bless in this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we sing.